Welcome to Doing Sustainability, a podcast that features practical and actionable approaches to sustainability, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we have enlightened conversations with corporate and business leaders on the vision, motivation, actions, and impacts of sustainability. We discuss best practices, fresh perspectives, tips, and solutions to help a company demonstrate its ESG commitment and position themselves for long-term success. Hi, I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's start the show. Today, we're talking with Bonnie Nixon. Welcome to Doing Sustainability, Bonnie. It's great to have you. Bonnie is the ESG and Sustainability Director at Long Beach Container Terminal. She has her own business providing purpose-driven research and ESG advisory services. I'm going to love to dig into all this stuff, Bonnie. She's called Bonco. Bonnie Co. Yeah, Bonnie Co. She's a partner at Now Partners. She's an adjunct professor at Harvard and UCLA. I went to one of those schools, I won't tell you. I know, I know you went to UCLA. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and she's a supply chain sustainability professor. So there's really a lot here. I'm kind of abbreviating this here, Bonnie. She worked as a global CSR, ESG, and sustainability director for Mattel. I got a lot of questions on that one. She has a bachelor's in sociology from Penn State University, a master's degree in how learning technologies can accelerate sustainability and advance human rights from Pepperdine, and a PhD in global leadership and change at Pepperdine School of Education. Yeah, I should clarify that. I'm a PhD candidate. I have about one more semester semester to go. And my um, doctoral thesis is on the intersection of environmental justice and modern slavery in complex supply chain. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, too. And unfortunately, that's very relevant in many places on the planet. It's not very unfortunate. And I would just say that in addition to Mattel, I, I spent a fairly short time at Mattel, but I did the same at Walmart. And mostly Hewlett Packard for 13 years. Okay, great. Bonnie, I usually ask this question how did you get here? When did the light bulb go on? But I think I know. Tell us about what happened in 1979 and Three Mile Island. Went back there. (laughs) I originally went to university to do pre law. I I grew up in New Jersey. And my aspiration was to mostly work on issues related to poverty and be a sort of a in the social welfare system and really to assist people in getting a leg up and dealing with issues that we now today call racial equity and environmental justice. And that was what I was going to focus on. However, while I was there in 1979, Three Mile Island was a nuclear power plant leak. And there was a lot of fear. And we were told there at the university that depending on how serious it got, that we would be receiving like the women and children and immune compromised populations at our auditoriums and in our cafeterias and at our gymnasiums and caused a great deal of fear. And so as a result of that, I became somewhat of an activist, but I was also in student government. I mean, so of course we were, you know, at that time, if you recall, there were no nukes demonstrations in Washington, D.C., in Harrisburg, which was closer to where, mm-hmm. where the event occurred. 
But for me, I was also a part of student government and I got to be and witness the conversation between the power plant operators, the administration, the media, the elected officials, and more importantly, the citizenry. And there was this very powerful strategic moment for me where a woman was swimming at the power plant operator and very fearful of what might occur for her children if, you know, we suffered from radiation or exposed radiation. And and at that point, the power plant operator looked at her and said, you know, I'm afraid too. And I was there that day and my family lives closer. And and it was a real aha strategic moment for me where I thought, you know, I don't think like most people wake up and, you know, and say, hey, let's do something evil today or let's radiate people. I, I really don't yeah. think that there are many people on the planet that do that. I believe in the goodness of people. And I believe that we're all sort of searching for that quality of life. But that for me was a, okay, why are we using this energy? And why are we relying on this if it is so dangerous? And are there alternatives? And what are those alternatives? And I became what I would call a factivist rather than just simply an activist, somebody who would really dig into the research and speak from a place of knowledge and understanding and be more compassionate because I always was a more of a mediator. I grew up in between two warring parents who eventually divorced and in between an older and a younger brother who frequently fought. And I was the sort of mediator saying, like, I don't think we're hearing each other, right? <laughs> I think we could listen a little more. Uh, I think that's not really what he or she said. And so I, that was the direction I shifted to. And I couldn't find environmental mediation at the time. Interestingly enough, you know, we had mediation, corporate mediation, family mediation. This country of the Netherlands was doing, I think, some of the more progressive things in the world at the time because they had come to realize that whether we all believed in climate change or not, they were under sea level. And they needed to go beyond mitigation to adaptation if the sea was going to continue to rise. And so they got their citizens, their corporations, and their businesses to work closely together. And I went over there and studied that before I came back and started working in Boston on the Boston Harbor Cleanup Project. Interesting. Really how my career began. Yeah. A small background on us. I'm going to tie this to you. So we're a corporate brand agency. I started off in the 80s writing, designing corporate entity reports, predecessor to sustainability reports. The Port of Los Angeles was one of my first clients. <laughs> and I love container terminal ports. I love the mass scale. I love the water. I love all the hardware. And we worked there with them, I don't know, five, six, seven years. And I remember back in the in the 80s, pollution was a big issue. And as the ships entered the port, and their answer at the time was, turn off the engines. <laughs> so you're at the Long Beach Container Terminal. I am. And, you know, the answer still is for the ships to turn off their engines. Yeah. We're one of the few ports in the world that forces the ships to turn off their engines within two hours of arrival. And right. when they're departing, it's one hour. And that's only recent that they installed that two-hour, one-hour deadline. And if you go beyond that, it costs $1,900 per hour, whether it's five minutes or 50 minutes. And the ships are absolutely the most polluting entity at the port complex, other than, you know, maybe adjacent 
refineries and things like that. But the ships, as it relates to moving freight, the ships are the number one polluter. The trucks are next. The cargo handling equipment at the container terminals is third. The train locomotives is fourth, and the tugs are fifth. So having said that, what makes Long Beach one of the greenest terminals in the world? We are a very unusual terminal in that we only opened the third phase at the end of 2021. And really in 2006, the Port of Long Beach and the owner of this terminal at that time, which was OOCL, came together and decided that they were going to build the greenest shipping terminal in the world. And what that would mean is that they would electrify all of the cargo handling equipment. So we have 93 cranes here, 18 ship-to-shore cranes, 69 stacking cranes, six rail cranes, and we have 102 electrified container transport or autonomous guided vehicles. They call them AGVs. And so when you look at all of that equipment is moving around, is battery operated, is electrified, it's not diesel. So in other terminals, all of that equipment is diesel, which is combustion-oriented, and it releases what nitrous oxide, sulfur oxide, and particulate matter 2.5 and 10. And those are what we call criteria pollutants. The other thing is gas and natural gas, and those are greenhouse gases. And so we still have 160 pickup trucks, and we're waiting to electrify those And moving forward pretty aggressively, when I got here almost two years ago now, I said, okay, what's it going to take to make sure every piece of fossil fuel equipment is off this terminal? And I've worked closely with our team and consultants to put a detailed net zero plan together and phased it out and costed it out and scheduled it out. And today we have that plan in place and within Six to seven years, we will be there. Before 2030, we will not have any fossil fuel vehicles here at all. And and even today, we're about 90% less emissions than any other terminal, certainly in the San Pedro port complex, but honestly, in the country and probably the world. Congratulations. I think that's so tremendous. And what has happened so much, you know, in just doing ESG reports, we have so many people making claims that they're going to be net zero by 2030. And there are absolutely no plans in place of showing the actions that they're going to take and how they're budgeted for and this, that, and the other. You know, you see how thorough it really has to be in bringing together the execution to really make that happen. That is so true. You know, I too see a lot of having spent more than 20 years in the corporate social responsibility and ESG and sustainability world. I've seen us all set goals and targets that have not been executed and where we've struggled around basic things like the metrics on how to compare apples to apples. And I was happy when the investment communities and the accountants and the investors and and CFOs got involved because they pushed for a common metric, which was basically fuel consumption. And they said, look, I mean, let's look at how much diesel, how much propane, how much gas, how much natural gas, 
you are using and demonstrate to us how you're phasing that out and what you're replacing it with, whether that be electrification or hydrogen or CNG, LNG or ammonia or green methanol or wind energy or solar energy or nano energy or tide energy. All of these things exist, but I think that we're only just now seeing the billions and trillions of dollars flowing into that marketplace. And we have a very detailed plan for these next six to seven years, which demonstrates how we're going to transition every piece of equipment. And we've identified the fact that we need about $250 million. We've already spent $2.5 billion. And we've just in this one year, this last year, we've been awarded $66 million from the state and federal government towards that $250 million. So we're well on our way. We've got another $150 million we're going after in the next few months from the government because we do actually believe that for this type of equipment, it needs to be subsidized and incentivized and supported by the government as well because it is about five or six or seven times the amount it would cost for a normal vehicle to put in the infrastructure put the chargers in, put the conduit in, bring this new equipment that meets these needs. And it's the engine of the economy. Yeah, absolutely. And here in the San Pedro port complex, and Gary, you know this if you worked at the Port of LA, between the Port of LA and the Port of Long Beach, we provide about 35 to 40% of the goods of the country. So we really are the engine for almost half of this country. And and from an environmental justice perspective, you know, it's not really fair for these communities of West Long Beach and Wellington and San Pedro and Gardena and Carson and South Central LA and Compton and Watts, the communities up to 710 where the trucks travel up. It's not fair for these communities to be suffering the bulk of that impact for 40% of the country. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Do you think that where does that commitment come from when you're working towards that and you're really planning and trying to structure budgets and trying to get everyone on the same page? How do you do that? I mean, a lot of people seem to be pushing a ball uphill and it doesn't seem to work. So how did you, uh, you know, implement so that it was really uptake by so many people? You know, I can't really take credit for the vast and immense amount of work that was put in place before I arrived. I was really equally impressed by the level of commitment by first the family that owned this facility. And now that's different. LBCT is currently and today owned by Macquarie Asset Management, a private equity entity. And the leadership that's here, you know, my CEO and C-suite, Uh, And the executives and all of the workforce are wonderful people that truly demonstrated a commitment over a long term to work collaboratively with the workforce, with the unions, with the city, with all the regulators, with the Port of Long Beach, with everybody involved to make that happen and to pull that $2.5 billion together that made this a reality. For this remaining, I'm very involved in that. And yes, it, it does take a lot of effort to, again, keep communications open every day with those legislators, with the policymakers, with the regulators, with the stakeholders, with the community groups, with the port. 
so that we can move together to throw this terminal over the fence and demonstrate that it's possible to have a true net zero facility. And I came with an existing commitment already. And, and I think my leadership knew when they brought me here, even my own boss laughs and he says, I told everyone here that let's not hire her if we're not really serious about going the whole way because she's the real deal. And for me personally, I moved to San Pedro. I built a little house and um, just one day about only living there a week or two, I noticed that there was this light layer of black dust soot on my deck. I said, this is in our air and it's not okay. (laughs) So I like did my own research on where would be ideal for me to serve and how I could contribute. And LBCT was absolutely the most ideal place. Fantastic. Hey, I came across the term, what is first mile to last? Yeah, as you know, I am a professor and today mostly at UCLA. In fact, I teach there every Thursday night right now. And and what we do is from the time that I spent at Hewlett Packard and then Walmart and then Mattel, consumer packaged goods were my focus. And I knew that while we could look at electronics today or toys today or orange juice or strawberry yogurt or cleaning detergent or whatever it may be and look at whether the packaging is recyclable or whether the product has certain chemicals in it or not and and that we're most focused on the usage of it how it got to retailer and whether you know it's clean what my interest has always been is how we get back to the first mile where most of the degradation occurs in deforestation, mining, ocean harvesting, land practices, agricultural practices, and extraction, certainly emitting out into the environment, petrochemical or resin factories or manufacturers where you're emitting air, poisonous gases, maybe PVC is burning into the air and chemicals. And so These were the four things that I was most interested in researching and recognizing that not only was the largest percentage of the impact happening, and largely in the Southern Hemisphere, in Africa, in India, in South America, in Southeast Asia, that we were doing all of this mining, we were doing all of this deforestation, where we're building all of these plants that we're emitting into the atmosphere, and finally also ocean harvesting and fishing and, and affecting or impacting the water by emitting things into our water bodies. And so that is the first mile. Not only were we in polluting the environment, but we were also exploiting the people and the communities. That's where it really happens. That's where you see the majority of the slavery in supply chains. Bonnie. You talk about your business, Boneco? Yeah, it's bon- it actually came from Boneco, which is bone and falsay in French. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good eco, and, yeah. and that's where I got it from. And if you were to look on the site, it just says good systems for good people. It goes back to even my Three Mile Island story where I said, you know, I think inherently or deep down, we're all very good people. And the question is, can we 
really come to appreciate our ecosystems and recognize that most of the breakdowns are systemic. And um, how can we look at system dynamics and recognize the interconnection? And that's what's so much fun for me about supply chain or supply networks, because they're almost holographic, holographic systems. They're not really linear. When you look at any natural systems like fungal networks or spiderwebs, you can see how everything's interconnected and interdependent. And that's true in supplier networks as well, as I can be your customer, I can be your competitor, I can be your supplier, I can be all those things at once, which means I have a very interdependent relationship with you. And so I look at things systemically. How with scope three do you think that people, even when they report it, it's like, is it really accurate? I mean, it's so hard for people to really know the transparency with their suppliers and the methods and that the systems are in place to measure those things and then provide them to their customers. So I guess it's all just a continuum of continuous improvement, but it's hard for me to draw a line in the sand where it becomes real. You know, that's a great question because, you know, one of the things that I've discovered and many of my students, I've been teaching for many, many years while I was at HP, I did some work at Stanford and Berkeley and Presidio, and then moved down here in UCLA and Harvard. And what I strive and help my students to see is that that's not as complicated as we often make, that we can demystify it, we can simplify it. You know, when you take any product, you can typically see that we have consolidated in a massive way. And so you take something like cleaning detergents, for example, and you've got Unilever, Dial Henkel, and Procter & Gamble, really the majority of the market. Then you'll go to the middle part of that supply chain and you'll have your chemical companies, your chemistry companies, maybe your BASF and your DSM and your DAOs and your DuPonts. And then you'll go to the base and you'll see the extraction companies, which again are only four or five companies. You give me any product and I can do that exercise. We take rubber and I'll tell you, Rubber, 65% of the rubber, 60% goes to tires, 30, 35 goes to construction materials. Less than 5% goes to your rubber boots and rubber raincoats and <laughs> rubber gloves. And now you look at those tires and you go, okay, that's Goodyear and Michelin and Firestone. And that, you know, it's a few companies that own the marketplace, control the marketplace, have the majority, have sometimes more than 70, 80, 90% of <laughs> the market. Then you go to the middle of the supply chain, and there are five companies in Thailand and one in Malaysia that do all the rubber processing, all of it. And it's a filthy place. And then you go to the bottom of the supply chain to where trees are tapped for their rubber, the latex. And you can find only a handful, again, of your largest regions and rubber plantation owners that are not doing regenerative rubber forests, they're doing degenerative and destructive tapping of trees. And so honestly, no matter what product you give me, I can show you that there's probably 10 to 15 companies controlling the entire marketplace. Wow. This is less than 10. And I think, yes, there are thousands of brokers in the middle 
and distributors and this and that. But honestly, it's not as complicated as we make it. And I think the environmental groups like World Wildlife Fund, EDF, Natural Resources Defense Councils, Conservation International, Greenpeace, Nature Conservancy, they've been trying to tell us this for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Go to the source and build up as opposed to trying to look and go, oh my gosh, I've got 20,000, 50,000 suppliers, so I can't do anything. And we move into a place of inertia. And honestly, scope three is not this incredibly difficult, challenging, impossible task. Scope three, when we're doing our supply chain, is about helping your biggest partners, your 80-20 partners, do their scope one and two can be broken down to that kind of a simple equation. When I was reading about your consultancy business, you talk about doing purpose-driven research. What is that, Bonnie? It's actually just what I shared with you just a moment ago. I mean, I have about 100 products where I have done that research and or my students have done that research. And I am inherently a lifelong learner, as you can see, being this age and still doing my PhD and still back in school. And I've always been in, in school at the same time I've even been um, a teacher. And I love learning. I love research. But I, I don't want to engage in just analysis paralysis, you know, where it's just like data in, data out, garbage in, garbage out, just for the purpose of collecting data. I want to make sure always that we're collecting it so that we can make decisions, so that we can increase our sense of urgency on how fast we should be moving in relationship to climate change, to protecting our water bodies, to protecting our species and our biodiversity. At times, you know, we're stuck always in this world of unintended consequences or or trade-offs when we do one thing, we hurt another thing. We may actually do an entire carbon reduction program and as a result, release more chemicals into the water or like ammonia into the water, which causes eutrophication and then degrades the water system. And so it's this constant conversation of trade-offs. And I like to always make sure that we are prioritizing the right things and having that serious prioritization conversation. Because when I watch my students do this at times too, I'll say, hey, go aggregate all the life cycle assessment data on you're studying steel or you're studying, one of my students is studying neoprene wetsuits right now, mm -hmm. you know, and they'll start to go down this really deep rat hole of every petrochemical plant. And, and I'll be like, wait, come back up and ask yourself, what the largest impact is here? You know, what the three major ingredients are, what the three highest risk countries are, what the biggest issues are, and always having that prioritization conversation. So even when I was working for the Walmart Sustainability Consortium, and, and now that isn't just controlled by Walmart, it has a lot of companies involved, but we stopped and said, okay, there's a million SKUs at Walmart or Target, and there are a billion SKUs at Amazon. But quite honestly, there's probably only 700, 800 product categories. Let's not focus on the SKUs because the issues are similar regardless of where they exist in the world. Living here in California, one thing that I've always wondered about with 
the wildfires going crazy in the last 10 years. They use that pink drop for putting out fires. I just wonder, you work so hard to like mitigate the environmental impact of things and then something like that that can get into the water supply. And how do we know what's really going on with those things that they emergency-wise have to use? But how is it setting us back with some of the actions that we're, we are seriously taking now to mitigate? Yeah, that's a really great point. And two things come to my mind. One is, once again, that sort of law of unintended consequences, you know, that we do we ask ourselves, when I'm doing this, what is the impact of that? And we see that so many times that we're trying to fix one thing. And as a result, we negatively impact another thing. And, and I think you're absolutely right on that. And MBTE, when we put that as a fuel additive, we ended up contaminating massive groundwater basins. It was leaching out all over and we were contaminated. Yet it was supposed to be this positive additive that would reduce emissions. So that is happening all the time because we know what we know when we know it. You know, I mean, there was a time when even the regulators said you have hazardous waste or you have chemicals, you put them in a drum and you bury them underground or you dump them in the ocean. Right here in Southern California, we have a situation where DDT was brought out in barrels off the coast of Catalina, packed through so that it could sink down to the bottom with DDT in it. And and are we surprised that all the seals and the otters and the whales and the dolphins, you know, and the sea lions have cancer and DDT in their blood? You know, no, we shouldn't be surprised at that. We made that choice. We made that decision. And now we're bearing those consequences or unfortunately those species are bearing those consequences. But the second part of the answer is really asking ourselves the root cause of that problem. So why are we having wildfires? Of course, we all know it's climate change, but it's deeper than that. It's also our land use development patterns. Why did we decide to build up on every foothill, (laughs) leading to every mountain? Why did we put developments out in areas where there wasn't any water? Why has 50% of our population moved to the most arid states in the country? And why did we build state water projects and Central Valley projects to move the water from one side of the state to another and destroy our complete water systems to begin with? The decisions go back very far, and it's all part of our history. I, I like the word history because it's his story. I think it's time to change history that we've developed. It's time to be more collaborative. It's time to be more holistic in our thinking. It's time to think about root causes. It's time to think about unintended consequences. It's time to do that with a sense of urgency and change the way we move. Yeah, fantastic. Great points. We touched on this earlier. You're pursuing a PhD in modern slavery and complex supply chains. That's got to be a real passion project after <laughs> talking to you here for 40 minutes. Yeah, there was this moment when I was in China and I remembered I was at a factory and I was asking them 
to do some things related to the environment. And as they were rebuilding some of their facilities, even to put more landscaping, more trees, and do things differently. And they had some other facilities in the Southern Hemisphere. And they said, why couldn't you make all of those solar? And I was asking them to do all these environmental things. And my staff brought me there because they wanted me to walk through the um, the factories and more importantly, the dormitories and to see the situation in the dormitories. And I did that. And this wasn't only in China, quite honestly, there's many countries that have dormitories associated with them. And, and that's the way that they bring workers in from other countries or rural areas. And migration is a root cause issue, creates a lot of vulnerabilities for workforces all over the planet. Workforces that are paid or and are not paid or are very well underpaid. Yes, Often because they're vulnerable people, they're coming there, they don't know the language, they can't read the paperwork, they don't have working papers, somebody's controlling them, somebody's charged them to bring them there, they've taken their parents' life savings, they think they're going to be able to send money back. You know, you even watch that throughout all of the Middle East right now, they're building, you know, all these incredible hotels and buildings and golf courses, but, you know, the workforces are are from India and Pakistan and Sri Lanka, and, and they have no way to get home, and they're not sending money back home like they were promised that they could, and they're slaves there. And we see that at one point, we believed that there were about 24 million people working in supply chains in the workforce that makes all of our products and delivers all of our services. And Today, I think that number is much higher. We actually believe it got a lot worse during the pandemic and a lot worse because now we're not auditing as much. We're not out there on the ground, boots on the ground, feet on the street, looking at how it's happening and how it's unfolding. But when I was at that factory, there was this moment when we went into that dormitory and I saw some pretty abhorrent conditions. And I came back and I had this like aha moment where I thought, you know, how am I going to get them to you know, feel something for the trees or the water or the land if even the people that are making these things and making money for them, that are putting those Mercedes and BMWs in the parking lot down there, even they can't live any kind of a decent existence. And it just really hit me hard and I thought, I need to equally focus on this human rights. And at that point, I really got close to the UN Declaration of Human Rights. I got active in business leaders in human rights. Earlier, I started to um, go to the OECD in Paris. I went to the International Labor Organization in Geneva. I began speaking all over the world on human rights. I even spoke before the General Assembly at the UN on human trafficking while I was at HP. And I just feel strongly, and I have enough personal experiences where as I sat down in those factories or I sat down in those mines, I went to the mines and I saw those people's faces and just, you know, knew that they could and should have a better life and a minimum have to get their food and their shelter and sleep and that they should be provided education, particularly if they're school children, you know, or they're, they're aged. And when you talk about how you get those people to have compassion, those people are making money for the people buying Mercedes and BMWs down in the parking lot. 
I mean, to me, it comes always back to the classic story of how impacted Nike was during the years when, you know, they were really called out for their sweatshops and the the value of the brand during those years. It was significant. And of course, they've made huge strides at this point. But I think some of those people, again, the line item of their brand equity and their brand value, before that, they didn't really understand that those things were connected as closely as they ended up being. So I actually know quite a bit about this situation because that is why I went to Hewlett Packard. So Nike was in 1996. And the case that got brought before the Supreme Court was the Caskey versus Nike case. And that was Mark Caskey, who is a friend of mine, based in San Francisco, lived in the Presidio in one of the older houses. And he brought that case in because what was happening was, I mean, if you remember, we also at the same time, we had like Kathy Lee Gifford and we had Adidas was a tax for children making soccer balls. You had Levi Strauss and Gap also had boycotts in front of their offices, which were, again, were right in San Francisco. A lot was happening in San Francisco, and that's where I was based. I was actually based right down on the Embarcadero. And I mean, the real conversation was, you've now outsourced your production. We used to all be global, vertical corporations. And in fact, many corporations were based right here. And you took care of the community and built a park. Now, you still might have been polluting and putting your barrels of DDT under the ground. And since we've watched a lot of that start to happen in the Industrial Revolution in the 40s and 50s and 60s, some real tactics and changes happened. That's when plastics actually became Tupperware, became part of our reality that we now are debating and in many ways regretting. And What happened then was that the conversation was like, just because you've outsourced your production doesn't mean you shouldn't be responsible for it. And that was what Mark's pretense was. Mark was basically saying, look, because he took it from this small town in Kentucky and you brought it to India or you brought it to China or you brought it to somewhere else, Vietnam or Sri Lanka, doesn't mean that you shouldn't still be responsible for it. And that was the case he brought before the judge. And he won that case, and it shocked the system. It shocked all of the corporate systems. Mm. They were like, whoa. And I agree with what you said, that today Nike is absolutely the number one leader in this space because they got hit so hard. Not only financially their stocks, the amount of money it cost them, the brand reputation damage, the amount of time their C-suite and all their executives spent on that, and the length of time and their stock prices. So all of those things were hit. And while I was at Mattel or prior to me joining Mattel, Mattel was hit similarly for lead and on the toy train. I saw that, that you were instrumental in getting the toxics out of the products. Yeah. At Nike, it was the Hewlett Packard executive who came to me and said, look, we are just beginning to outsource. We've been, you know, going to Mexico and starting that process, but we're moving more and more to Asia. And before we do that, we want to make sure that the practices and the policies and our execution and our monitoring and verification and closure is appropriate and that we aren't doing this kind of damage. And they were proactive about it. And it was 1997, only one year after the Caskey versus Nike, I started at HP. 
that's very near and dear to my heart, that whole situation. And that's part of why I've stayed in supply chain ever since. This has been a great conversation, Bonnie. Doing our podcast, it's so interesting because there's so many people in this world of sustainability. And there's so many aspects perspectives and experiences. And this has been great. This has been enlightening. It's all important. This is fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Your questions are great. And you obviously, you know, have passion and experience yourselves in this market. And, you know, when you asked about the purpose driven, it's like, I think it certainly keeps me committed. It's me in what I would say a state of continual and everlasting service to this cherished, amazing gift we've been given here. You know, I mean, nature feeds me every day. To me, sustainability is really finally the thing that is holding business accountable for purpose and for it being to a greater good. That's exciting. Yeah. And I think it's about accountability at all levels, because we also as consumers need to be more cognizant of whether we need things and much we need and whether we take the time. You asked me earlier about research. You know, I mean, I don't buy things unless I do the research and I say, hey, which company is doing the most, doing the best? Why would I make this investment? Why am I going to vote for this company and put dollars in their pocket? I mean, there are many companies, people ask me why I don't go buy one of these things or one of these things, or I don't buy from this entity or this entity. And I basically look at them and said, I've done my research. Yeah. I'm very purpose-driven and I do not find that CEO or that leadership team to have that same sense of purpose that I do. And therefore, I'm not going to put my dollars in their pocket. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we want to stay in touch and thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you. When the podcast gets produced, we'll send it to you and be in touch and send you artwork. And if you want to put it out on any networks that you have, happy for you to do that. But we do want to stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Keep us really great. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Thanks for listening. This is just a reminder to follow Doing Sustainability wherever you get your podcast. And please leave a rating and review if you like the show. It helps others discover us. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to learn more about our agency, Baker, and how we can help you build your corporate brand, align your culture, and evolve your ESG reporting, head to bakerbrand.com. See you in the next episode of Doing Sustainability, where we focus on practical and actionable approaches to sustainability to create long-term value.